0: The last year and a half or so, many of us have had to make the choice to stay isolated. Whether it was missing out on family events, going on trips, or seeing our friends, we all coped in our own ways. Many of us still being able to find comfort in the digital sphere and the many others going through the same things. But what if you were told you won't have access to the internet, phone, or any outside communication because a judge feared that you could launch a nuclear weapon just by whistling a launch code into a phone. This isn't a lie. This actually happened in the 90s to an infamous hacker by the name of Kevin Mitnick. The 90s was a really weird time for hacking. Cybersecurity as we know it today just didn't exist. Most of what people knew about hackers came from movies and TV shows. I know I've seen many like Hackers or Johnny Mnemonic. Even the Matrix takes that inspiration of hackers and pushes it to the extreme. So when Kevin Mitnick spent five years in jail, and eight months of it was in solitary confinement, he was put there out of genuine fear by those who convicted him. To get to that point, though, Kevin had traveled a long and strange, but very interesting road of hacking, trickery, and general curiosity. When I say that cybersecurity wouldn't be what it is without Kevin Mitnick, I'm not exaggerating. He's had books documentaries, and movies written about him. He's been doing this longer than some of the techniques he uses have had names. No, he couldn't actually whistle a nuclear launch, but what he could do was arguably just as impressive. I'm John Cordes, and I'm inviting you to take a trip back in time with me to the late 80s and 90s, and join me while I explain what the shell was going on back then. A question to get us kicked off. So at one time, you were the most famous hacker in the world, um, the most wanted computer criminal. What did you do that got you that honor? I hacked into a lot of systems.
1: The world's most wanted hacker. He'll never guess my password. Please welcome Kevin Mitnick. Be-
0: it's, a, it's, a, it's a title that's kind of cool to have, but um, I had a lot of trials and tribulations to get to, the, to that point. A lot of bad things happened in my life. Think back to when you were 12 years old. What was life like back then for you? For me, it was a lot of trading cards, sports, and video games. While I always considered myself a bit of a dorky and curious kid, Kevin Mitnick took that concept and really stretched it to see how far he could go. At 12 years old, Kevin accomplished his first big hack. And you might be thinking to yourself, what kind of computer system could he hack at 12 years old in 1975? Well, the answer is it wasn't a computer system. It was a system of people, specifically the Los Angeles bus system. Using just his wits, Kevin was able to work out how to effectively never pay for a bus fare. You see, back then, when you bought a bus ticket, you could opt to buy a transfer slip for an extra 10 cents. How this worked was when you got off the bus, you'd get it punched and show it to another bus driver to get right on. Kevin saw this as a bit of an opportunity and thought that if he could get a punch and blank transfer slips, he'd be able to get what were basically free rides. So little 12-year-old Kevin had a plan to put in motion and one day asked the driver of the bus he was on if he knew where he could get a punch for a school project. He said to the driver that the project he's doing at school had cutouts in it and all these different shapes for each cutout and he really thought that the punch-out shape for transfers would be cool to add. So that driver, just wanting to help a kid get a good grade, gave Kevin the address to the public transit store, where he'd be able to buy the same kind of punch that bus drivers use to snip transfer slips. He did that by alleging it was a gift for his father, who he claimed worked for the LA Transit. But that was just half the problem. He had the punch at this point, but no slips. What he noticed was that people were frequently messy and would just throw unused transfer slips on the ground. Kevin, assuming that the Transit Authority didn't really do the most thorough job of cleaning, chose to try to find out where the buses were cleaned and do a little bit of dumpster diving outside the station. What he ended up finding was a veritable gold mine of unused transfer slips and even half used books of the slips that hadn't been torn out yet. Here he is at 12 years old, piecing together a solution that got him free rides as long as he could keep it up. And keep it up he did. Being a bit of a naive 12 year old, he'd just offer to punch random people's trips with his cards and let them ride for free too. Just listen to him talk about the experience. So I started punching my own transfers to ride the RTD bus system for free. I didn't even know what
1: I was doing was wrong, that it was fraud and I'd be so open about it that I'd be at a bus stop with other people and I'd say, oh, you know, you don't have to pay. I could punch you a transfer, you know, 12 years old, right? But I'd be punching people transfers in some cases. Most people didn't take it because they knew what I was doing was wrong. And it got to be where I wasn't
0: even hiding it. And I made friends with a lot of the bus drivers and they would just give me the blank books of transfers, knowing what I was doing. And nobody ever told me it was wrong. So that's kind of my first hack. What Kevin did to the bus driver back then would have been called lying at best, fraud at worst. He was a kid though, and I don't think anyone would consider calling fraud on him. Today in the security industry, we call it social engineering. Social engineering is a kind of hacking that doesn't need computers, but can for sure be expanded upon by them. It's exploiting the human piece of the puzzle to get what you need. It might take the form of someone pretending to be an IT support specialist to get into an office or just relying on the kindness of strangers to maybe hold the door open to a secure area because you just happen to have your hands full of boxes. For Kevin, this was the groundwork of what would be a long journey of social engineering and hacking. Kevin Barker has a course on social engineering and cybersecurity, and this snippet that I have coming up next, he talks about how some of it can be used today and why they're frequently effective.
1: Listen in. So let's start off with some of the reasons, and I'll give you some examples of each one as we go through. Number one is authority. There's been test after test after test done, that if somebody thinks that somebody else is in authority, like a doctor, a scientist, uh, a leader, et cetera, et cetera, and that person has authority, they're more willing to comply with that person's requests. So with social engineering, if somebody has a pretext or pretending to be someone they are not, like, hey, this is the CEO's desk, or this is the XYZ person, we're more likely, if we believe that, to comply and to do that thing which would compromise us. Another reason that social engineering is successful is intimidation. If somebody gets a vishing call with a V and they are told it's the IRS In the United States, we have this organization called the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service. And if they pretend to be the IRS and, oh, you're in trouble and you got to do this. You know what? If that freaks somebody out so badly that they're really nervous, That could cause them to actually do the action the attacker wants them to do, which is going to end up in sending some kind of currency to some other destination so the attacker can get it. And that would be an example of intimidation. Another reason that social engineering is so darn successful is consensus. Hey, everybody else believes that. <laughs> everybody else is doing this. My dad once said, if everybody, if all your friends were jumping off a cliff, would you jump off the cliff? <laughs> I don't remember what my answer was, but today it would be, well, do I have a bungee cord or do I have a parachute? Let me get I need more detail. So the idea behind consensus is that if a whole bunch of people agree with whatever this thing is and it, or it looks like they all agree, it's more easier for the person who are trying to manipulate to go ahead and agree and follow along. Another fun technique that's used is scarcity. Limited time only. You got to do this now. <laughs> Where if the user doesn't act quickly, they may lose on an opportunity. So the attacker could come in with all these options available and just start hitting the button that's working against the victim. Another angle that's commonly used is familiarity or trust. So an attacker who wants to compromise a person, maybe they don't just come right out and say, please give me this information. Perhaps they, they stalk them on social media, they become friends with them, they gain their trust. And as an individual is now more familiar with the other individual, they're more likely at the end to do what that attacker is intending for them to do, which includes maybe revealing information they shouldn't or revealing a password or clicking a link, etc. Because if the victim both has familiarity and likes the person and also trusts the person, that is really tricky, especially when that attacker has nefarious or malicious intent as an end result for that relationship. And as we take a look at these options of why social engineering attacks can be successful, I'd also like to just reinforce the concept of urgency. Now, I know I've I've implied that throughout several of these techniques. However, the sense of urgency of having to do something now or you're gonna lose out or be in trouble or have a problem that doesn't give the brain enough time to think and oftentimes that can cause the victim to do again something like click a link reveal information or do something else that otherwise they never should have done which if they do that thing which the attacker is enticing them to do they could then have the compromise happen to themselves to their network or to the company or all three
0: you might recognize some of those tactics from a first episode specifically scarcity That pressure to do things quickly is often applied in ransomware attacks to push people into paying at the risk of time running out. The only big difference there, though, is that ransomware typically has an actual threat on the other side if you try to call the bluff. It was how Kevin's childhood largely went. He'd find fun and creative ways to challenge the way people thought and the way things worked, but. In high school, he started drifting from that kind of chaotic good attitude and toward what would start becoming pretty frequent brushes with the law. In 1979, when Kevin was around the age of 16, he'd surrounded himself with kids that had the same hacker hobbies as he did. One of which, named Phone Freak, we could do an entire episode around if we wanted to. But high school kids being high school kids, there wasn't the best concept of right and wrong there. There had largely been no real consequences for what he'd been doing up to this point, and the group decided to give Kevin a dare. The dare was simple. Hack into the Ark. What was the Ark? Well, it was a computer system owned by a company called the Digital Equipment Corporation, or DEC. At the time, they were a major player for software and hardware, and had been since the 60s. That meant that what they were asking was no small feat The Arc system was used for developing operating system software, stuff that probably could have been sold for a good profit if he got it out. Wanting to be included in the group, Kevin didn't back down in the face of this challenge. He would again push the boundaries of social engineering to get what he needed. With the help of one of his fellow hackers in the group, he was given the phone number of the Arc systems administrator and decided to call them. This time, He pretended to be a lead developer that needed access to the arc. Now he's 16 at this point, and I think that's the most amazing part to me here, is that a 16-year-old was able to pose as an adult. I guess it really just goes to show how far confidence will get you into the room. So after talking his way through the developer, he ultimately lands the password, which, I kid you not, was buffoon. Suddenly Kevin was in. And I just want to stress again, this company was not a small company. It eventually would end up as a part of Compaq and subsequently become HP, which is still a major tech institution today. To me, this was an insane chance that he took. A company like this was no small fry, and surely if they ever found out about this, they'd want some kind of action taken against Kevin. On the one hand, he is just a high schooler, but this was a pretty major crime. At this point, if any adult would commit it, they probably have some serious penalties levied against them. But here's Kevin Mitnick balancing class, breaking into computer systems, and downloading secrets, I guess. So Kevin goes back to his buddies at school and tells them, to their amazement, that he's got the way in. He got the password. And upon hearing Kevin talk about it, it doesn't seem like they ever expected him to get in. In fact, this same crew that dared him to do it would eventually download the data, and one of the friends would call the DEC to let them know Kevin had hacked them. This would lead to his arrest nine years later in 1988, but like I said earlier, this wouldn't be his last brush with the law. So let's put a pin in it and hit a couple bullets on his way between now and then. In 1981, when Kevin was 17, he and two of his friends actually broke into Pacific Bell, or Pac Bell as it's commonly known, it's a telephone company servicing California. Today, it'd be like someone breaking into AT&T, and in fact, the company is still around as a subsidiary of AT&T, who now operate under their parent company's name. So if you hack AT&T in California, you might as well effectively be hacking Pac Bell. Again, Kevin used social engineering. He talked his way past to guard, got let in, eventually making out with lists of passwords, combinations to door locks of nine different company offices and a series of manuals for the company's proprietary computer system called Cosmos. Not only that, as a way to get back into the future, they took a Rolodex and put their pseudonyms there. So he took the common names and phone numbers they used to disguise themselves and tossed it in that Rolodex to lend credibility if they ever returned. It seemed like this little flourish though was the that broke the camel's back here because a manager at pac bell soon discovered the phony contacts and reported them to the police who would start an investigation leading to kevin spending around three months in the la juvenile detention center followed by a year of probation his next arrest would happen in 1983 by way of campus police at the university of southern california he was actually caught using a computer to gain access to arpanet For those who are unaware, ARPANET was the forerunner to the internet, back when it was largely just a part of the Department of Defense. And what was he looking at using this connection? Well, it turned out he was gaining access to a Pentagon computer. That's right, Kevin broke into the Pentagon from California at the age of 19. It seems like he's always pushing boundaries at this point, stuff that I don't think he ever really thought was wrong either. If you ever listen to Kevin talk about it, there's never really a sense of remorse. And honestly, I kind of get it. It's a bit of a two-sided coin here. Because sure, while Kevin wasn't necessarily doing right, he was pushing boundaries and finding security holes that almost certainly would lead to these institutions making changes in how they operate in their security structure. Today, there's a bit of a more legal and legitimate process around this. You can hire companies to try and find these holes in your security, and those are companies that specialize in what's called penetration testing. You pay them, and they'll stay within whatever scope you define, testing everything from physical security of your building to phishing with people who work there, or even just trying to hack their way into systems. Oftentimes, a good penetration test will include all three of those. I suspect if this field had been around during those times, Kevin probably would have ended up landing there a lot earlier than he actually did. Some companies also have what's called a bug bounty program that give public users a limited scope in which they can choose to try to hack apps or systems. If they succeed, they'd get a small payout or a large payout. Some can go up to the thousands of thousands of dollars. These days, is actually quite easy to stay in the law and still do a lot of what I think he'd have enjoyed while getting paid for it. So, effectively, here he was, among the first to gain unauthorized access to the Pentagon by way of a computer network. This incident, though, led him to getting another six months at the California Youth Authorities training school in Stockton. There were plenty of other smaller run-ins with the law, some that even borderlined lined as pranks in the mid to late 80s, but eventually the ghosts of hacking past came back to haunt him in the form of an arrest for what he'd done to DEC. In 1988, Mitnick was arrested for illegally copying software from Digital Equipment Corporation. During that trial, his defense attorneys argued that his hacking activities were a quote, addiction. That's right, computer addiction. I think these days we kind of take for granted how socially accepted it is to have such prominent and active online lives. However, that wasn't really the case all the time. When all this was still fresh in the 80s and 90s, it was brand new horizons. People hadn't lived with this technology, let alone grown up with it like Kevin did. So there were always arguments that people who took a hyper interest in it were addicted, the same way people would be addicted to drugs. It might even sound a bit familiar if we wrap it in a different kind of paper. This decade it's social media that's plaguing people. Last decade it was video games. At one point it was even Dungeons and Dragons. Was Kevin truly addicted? Probably not the way the court would have had you believed at the time, but he certainly was skilled at getting out of social situations in the past, so why would this interaction with the court be any different? Digital Equipment Corporation argued that the total cost of secrets downloaded and stolen, the man hours spent on this, and pursuing him totaled up to $4 million in restitution. I can't imagine facing down the barrel of that kind of bill at 25 years old. The court didn't see it quite worth that much though and ended up with Kevin getting the bill at around $160,000. That might sound a bit less than the $4 million, but adjusted for inflation, It's still around $370,000 if this happened today. In addition to that, he'd also end up being sentenced to a year in jail and six months in a halfway house. But while it seemed like Kevin was done with the law for some time, especially since a part of his release forbade the use of technology as a form of probation, the law wasn't quite done with him. The FBI still had Kevin in their sights and had decided to start building a case against him Eventually, they'd enlist the help of an informant to catch Mitnick for breaking the terms of his release. They'd soon get enough of a case together to put yet another warrant out for his arrest in 1992. And this is when things start to really escalate for Kevin, because what does he do? He runs. In 1992, Kevin went into hiding, and that's where we're gonna cut the episode for today. We've primed you on his early life, some of the biggest hacks he's performed that got him into some seriously hot water, but now he's on the run and he's got people interested in finding him, and his hacking methodology, as well as his targets, are only going to be getting larger and more impressive. Next time, we continue our discussion on Kevin Mitnick, including his time on the run, his eventual prison time, why it was so controversial, and what Kevin is doing these days. We'll dive into the Free Kevin movement that originated while he was in jail, and why one judge put him in solitary confinement out of fear for what he could do. Thanks for joining me in the second episode of What the Shell. If you liked this episode, or hey, even if you didn't, you can let me know on Twitter and Instagram at shell underscore pod for both of them, or you can leave a review. I won't know how to make it better without feedback from you, the audience. So thanks for bearing with me while I find my sea legs and figure this stuff out. I'm John Cordes. Thanks for listening to me explain what the shell was going on with Kevin Mitnick. I'll see you in two weeks.